My name is Hisashi Owada. I am currently a judge of the International Court of Justice in The Hague. I am also concurrently a professor at Leiden University. I used to teach at the University of Tokyo in Japan, among other places in the United States as well. Now, today I'm going to speak about um, the encounter of Japan with the community of civilized nations. This is an interesting subject to many of you, particularly those who come from the developing countries, in the sense that Japan, about 150 years ago, had very much the same kind of experience to be exposed to the community of civilized nations. And um, Japan's experience tells a lot about the essential nature of modern international law and how countries who come into existence into the community of nations uh, try to cope with that framework of order. And it is in that sense that I have decided to choose a subject, uh, namely the problem of encounter of Japan with the community of civilized nations. Now let me begin with the history of it before coming to, to Japan. In the modern history of Europe, it used to be customary for many years to perceive international law as a law of European nations. It may not be possible to trace with accuracy the precise genesis of this perception back to its original source, but it would seem less difficult to identify some elements in the evolution of the concept that led scholars to this perception of the law of nations. It essentially emanates from the idea that the law of nations is a product of the cultural life and the legal conscience of the nations of European civilization. In my view, there seems to lie behind this assertion two intertwined elements that fostered such perception. One is the conception of the law developed theoretically as a doctrine born in the tradition of Christian theology represented by such names as Francisco Vittoria, Suarez, and especially Hugo Crucius, which was rooted in the concept of the jus naturale of Christian origin. The other is a concept of the law developed historically as a doctrine nurtured in the expansionist milieu of the 19th century Europe, which was founded on the notion of, I quote, community of European nations sharing a common civilization, end of quotation, of Judeo-Christian faith. An illustration of the first element can be found already in the doctrine developed by Francisco Vittoria, uh, the, the um, international lawyer of the 15th to 16th century. Earlier, Pope Innocent IV, who lived, who reigned in the 13th century, who is described as, and I quote, the greatest lawyer that ever sat upon the chair of St. Peter, end of quotation, because of the influence he had on his jurisprudential successors like Francisco Vittoria and Hugo Grotius. The Pope claimed that the Pope 
as the vicar of Jesus Christ, and I quote his words, can grant indulgences to those who invade the Holy Land for the purpose of recapturing it, although the Saracens possess it, for they possess it illegally, end of quotation. While inheriting this legacy of Christian theology, the Spanish theologian Francisco de Victoria tried to theorize the Spanish conquest of the Americas against the alleged right of the inhabitants of the New World on the broader basis of natural law. He tried to justify the Spanish action by taking the position that the issue was less one of faith and more one of protecting certain natural rights of the Spaniards. However, Victoria's acceptance of the natural rights of the Americans is to be regarded as being based not only on Europe's concern to define the rights of all with whom it came into contact in legal terms, but also on its unchanging demand that the basic elements of what later became known as a standard of civilization be enforced. Now, these are the words of Francisco de Victoria. In this sense, I submit that Victoria is to be regarded as forerunner of the protagonist for natural rights within the legacy of Christian Europe. Now, Hugo Grotius, who is universally regarded as the father of the law of nations, for his contribution to the construction of the modern law of nations based on the law of nature through the systematic treatment of the law of war, also observes the following in his Shodovro, the Jure Beri Akpakis. And I quote, in two ways, men are wont to prove that something is according to the law of nature. Proof a priori consists in demonstrating the necessary agreement or disagreement of anything with a rational and social nature. Proof a posteriori in conducting, if not with absolute assurance, at least with every probability, that that is according to the law of nature, which is believed to be such among all nations, or among all those that are more advanced in civilization. The important point is the underlying words, more advanced in civilized nations. Then he continues, and I quote again, not without reason did I speak of the nations more advanced in civilization. For, as Porphyry rightly observes, some nations have become savage and inhuman, and from then it is by no means necessary that a fair judge draw a conclusion unfavorable to human nature. End of quotation. It is my submission that in these teachings of the classical school of international law, one can discern a seed of the process in which the first element of the doctrine of jus naturale in the context of Christian theology would develop into a theorization of a doctrine which led to the second element of the Eurocentric view of the international community at the time of an expansionist Europe. Suggests that a link between the two in this context is already visible 
in Montesquieu, the philosopher of the Enlightenment. Now, he wrote in his De l'Esprit des Lois, 1748, the following on the law of nations, and I quote from Montesquieu. All nations have the law of nations, and even the Iroquois, who eat their prisoners, have one. They send and receive embassies. They know the laws of war, uh, war and peace. The trouble is that their law of nations is not founded on true principles. End of quotation. Interestingly, it is he who also found a distinction between the savage and the barbarian, as the following passage demonstrates, and I quote again. One difference between savage people and barbarian peoples is that the former are small, scattered nations, which, for certain particular reasons, cannot unite, whereas barbarians are ordinarily small nations that can unite together. Many things govern men, climate, religion, laws, the maxims of the government, examples of past things, more and uh, mores and manners, a general spirit is formed as a result. To the extent that in each nation, one of these causes acts more forcefully, the others yield to it. Nature and climate almost alone dominate savages. Manners govern the Chinese, laws tyrannize Japan, end of quotation. It would be permissible to suggest that from this position of Montesquieu on the distinction between the savages and the barbarian as distinguished from the civilized, it was only one small step to reach the thesis advanced by James Lorimer, a well-known authority of international law of Great Britain of the 19th century, Professor Lorimer, that is, made the famous distinction between first civilized humanity, second, barbarous humanity, and third, savage humanity, and questioned the applicability of the law of nations to the different groups according to this distinction. He opined as follows, and I quote from Lorimer, as a political phenomenon, humanity in its present condition divides itself into three concentric zones of spheres that of civilized humanity, that of barbarous humanity, and that of savage humanity. To these belong, of right, at the hands of civilized nations, three stages of recognition. Plenary political recognition, partial political recognition, and natural or mere human recognition. The sphere of plenary political recognition extends to all the existing states of Europe with their colonial dependencies, insofar as these are peopled by persons of European birth by, of this, or descent, and to the states of North and South America which have vindicated their independence of the Euro European states of which they were colonies. Second, the sphere of partial recognition extends to Turkey in Europe and in Asia and to the old historical states of Asia which have not become European dependencies, namely 
to Persia and the other separate states of Central Asia to China, Siam, and Japan. The sphere of natural or mere human recognition extends to the residue of mankind, though here we ought perhaps to distinguish between the progressive and non-progressive races. It is with the first of these spheres alone that the international jurist has direct to deal. He is not bound to apply the positive laws of nations to savages or even to barbarians as such, but he is bound to ascertain the points at which and the direction in which barbarians or savages come within the scope of partial recognition, end of quotation. When examined in this way, it becomes clear that the history of the European perception on the law of nations contains a continuum in thinking from the concept of the law of nations based on the law of nature as theorized by Victoria and Grotius to the ideology of the law of nations as the law of European civilized nations as advanced by Lorimer. This ideology served the purpose of providing a theoretical basis for the call of the so-called civilized mission of Europe, or to use the famous uh, phrase advocated by Victor Hugo for France, la mission civilisatrice, as a justification for the expansion of Europe to Asia and Africa, especially of the 19th century, became particularly conspicuous in the writings of theorists of international law of the period. In the same vein, Henry Wheaton, well-known publicist of international law of the period, based his theory of international law on the idea that international law was founded on the principles of Christian morality as reciprocally practiced between the Christian states of Europe. He put forward this perception in the following thesis. Progress of civilization founded on Christianity has gradually conducted us to observe a law analogous to this in our intercourse with all the nations of the globe, whatever may be their religious faith and without reciprocity on their part. This is a quotation from Wheaton. In Wheaton's view, in other words, public international law, with slight exception, has always been and still is limited to the civilized and Christian people of Europe and to those of European origin. It is important to note, however, that this perception of common European civilization at the basis of the law of nations contained an element of practical implication for the future application of the system to a broader world. While the law of nations was limited to the civilized Christian people of Europe, it was recognized that there could be a necessity to regulate the intercourse between the Europeans and the people outside European civilization as they came in contact with each other. This indeed was the theoretical basis for the system of extraterritoriality that came to be practiced by European nations in their dealings with nations outside the orbit of European civilization. Let me give you one example. John Westlake, 
Fewer professor of international law at Cambridge University in the second half of the 19th century, while sharing the predominant view of the period that full recognition before international law and membership in civilized international society had to be limited to the society of states having European civilization, nevertheless made the following point, and I quote from uh, Westlake. Throughout Europe and America, if we accept Turkey, habits, occupations, and ideas are very similar. The same arts and sciences are taught and pursued. The same avocations and interests are protected by similar laws, civil and criminal, the administration of which is directed by a similar sense of justice. In contrast, Turkey, Persia, China, and Japan, Siam, and some other countries have civilizations different from the European. The Europeans or Americans in them form class apart and would not feel safe under the local administration of justice, which, even when they assured of its integrity, could not have the machinery necessary for giving adequate protection to the unfamiliar interests arising out of foreign civilization. End of quotation. In saying this, Westlake makes it clear that we have nothing here to do with the mental or moral characters which distinguish the civilized from the uncivilized individual, nor even with the domestic or social habits. For him, what was at stake in this context was the question of the prime necessity, according to his words, the prime necessity of a government under the protection of which Europeans might carry on the complex life to which they had been accustomed in their homes. And it was this test that Japan would come to face in the crucial years of the second half of the 19th century when the fateful encounter with this community of civilized nations fell upon Japan. Now, how did the encounter of Japan with the community of civilized nations take place? It should not be assumed that Tokugawa Japan, during the period of Sakoku, namely the seclusion of the country, was completely cut off from the movements of the outside world. Through the restricted contacts with the Dutch at Nagasaki, the advanced knowledge of the West did flow into Japan. Nevertheless, these contacts were almost exclusively limited to the fields of science and technology, such as medicine, natural science, and weaponry, and did not extend to the field of relating to social and political life of the people, such as humanities or law. Also, contacts were restricted to purely commercial trade and therefore did not develop into any official relationship between the Japanese authorities and the Dutch authorities on the international level as we understand it today. Dutch traders in Japan, confined to the tiny island of Deshima in the port of Nagasaki, were subjected to strict regulations of conduct imposed upon them by the Japanese authorities. 
and no question was raised about their treatment as aliens in the light of the standard of treatment uh, commonly practiced by the European nations in their mutual intercourse. And this lasted more than 200 years, from the middle of the 17th century to the middle of the 19th century. By contrast, after some futile attempts by various maritime powers to open Japan to the intercourse with nations of the world in the middle of the 19th century, when Commodore Matthew Perry of the United States arrived in Japan in 1853 with four black ships to present President Fillmore's letter to the Japanese emperor, his interest, in spite of what was stated in the president's letter, was as much political as economic. Perry's basic position in carrying out his instructions was, to use his own words, quote, to demand as a right and not solicit as a favor those acts of courtesy which are due from one civilized nation to another, to be received in a manner honorable to his government and to be treated on a footing of equality, thus destroying the presumed claim hitherto held forth by China and Japan that all present all presents to the respective emperors have been tendered as tribute to superior powers, end of quotation. Thus, the first exposure of Japan to the community of civilized nations, and together with it, to the to totally alien concept of law of nations came into being. When Commodore Perry anchored off the shores of Uraga, only a few miles away from Edo, the capital of the shogunate, his demarche triggered a heated reaction in Tokugawa, Japan, dividing the camps of daimyo, namely feudal lords, between those who advocated for the policy of joy, that is to say, expelling the barbarians, and those in favor of kaikoku, that is to say, opening the country. Paradoxically, however, this configuration of alliances was in reality as much based on political maneuvers as on ideological differences against the background of the declining power of the shogunate and the strategic consideration of gaining support among the daimyos, the feudal lords, in the ensuing battle to the succession of power. To prove this point, what started as a movement for sonno joi that is to say, revering the emperor and expelling barbarians, against the other school of thought, Sabaku Kaikoku school, namely supporting the shogunate combined with opening the country, ended up by turning into a movement for bringing down the shogunate under the banner of sonno kaikoku, which is a combination of two different elements, namely revering the emperor, but at the same time opening the country. In fact, apart from a series of xenophobic incidents provoked by nationalistic extremists, the whole country came to be eventually consolidated in support of the policy for opening the country while rejecting the century-old ancestral precept of the Tokugawa shogunate to keep the country immune from the evil influences of the outside world, 
a policy which originated in 1632 and policy which led to the seclu official seclusion of the country. It was in fact the defeat of China in the Opium War of 1840-42 which forced China to open five ports, including Shanghai, to Western powers that alarmed the people in Japan. Nevertheless, when the news of their, this defeat was brought to the officials of the shogunate by the Dutch, the reaction of the shogunate was one of indecision. King Willem II of Holland delivered a state note to the shogun on the 15th of February 1844, in which the king advised that, and I quote, if you if your happy land is to be spared of devastation of the war, laws strictly forbidding foreigners to enter into intercourse should be relaxed." End of quotation. But the reply of the shogunate was that they did not intend to change their ancient law handed down over the generations. Small wonder, therefore, that the arrival of Commodore Perry at Uraga created a big commotion, not only within the government, but throughout the country. Tokugawa Nariaki, a former Lord of Mito and one of the three families closest in blood to the shogun, and a fervent advocate of the Joey faction, that is to say, the policy to expel the foreigners, sent a letter of urgent warning to Bakufu arguing that, according to his words, the final and most urgent of our tasks is for the Bakufu, the shogunate, to make its choice between peace and war, and having determined its policy, to pursue it unswervingly thereafter. And he urged that the shogun choose the latter course of action, namely war to expel the Western barbarians. He advised, in effect, as follows, again, according to his own words, if we put our trust in peace, even though things may seem tranquil for a time, the morale of the country will be greatly lowered, and we will come in the end to complete collapse. This has been amply demonstrated in the history of China. Though scholars of Dutch studies in Japan may argue secretly that world conditions are much changed from what they were, and that our best course would be to communicate with foreign countries and open an extensive trade, yet to my mind, that is to say to the mind of the Lord of Mito, if the people of Japan stand firmly united, if we complete our military preparations and return to the state of society that existed before the Middle Ages, then we will even be able to go out against foreign countries and spread abroad our fame and prestige." End of quotation. Against this emotional outburst of nationalistic sentiments on the part of the Sonno Joy faction, that is to say the faction to expel the foreigners, some leaders within the shogunate, including the, prime, the then prime minister of the shogunate government, I Naosuke, were much more sober in their assessment of the international situation surrounding Japan, as described in the state note of King William II of, the, of, of Holland. Thus, 
Prime Minister Lee stated to the Shogun in his official letter to the Shogun as follows, and I quote, careful consideration of conditions of the outside world as they are today leads me to believe that despite the constant differences and debates into which men of patriotism and foresight have been led in recent years by their perception of the danger of foreign aggression, it is impossible in the crisis we now face to ensure the safety and tranquility of our country merely by an insistence on the seclusion laws as we did in former times. There is a saying that when one is besieged in a castle, to raise the drawbridge is to imprison oneself and make it impossible to hold out indefinitely. And again, another saying that when opposing forces face each other across a river, victory is obtained by those who cross the river and attack. Even though the shogun's ancestors set up seclusion laws, they left the Dutch and the Chinese to act as a bridge to the outside world. Might not this bridge now be of advantage to us in handling foreign affairs, providing us with a means whereby we may for a time avert the outbreak of hostilities and then, after some time has elapsed, gain a complete victory." End of quotation. Eventually, this view prevailed, though at the cost of the life of Prime Minister Yi himself, who was assassinated. In 1854, the Treaty of Peace and Amity with the United States was concluded by the Shogunate government, thus putting an end to the 250-year history of self-imposed seclusion of Japan from the outside world. While Perry, a soldier, forced Japan to open its door to the outside world with a show of arms, it was Harris, the first consul general in Japan, who gave infield instructions to the Japanese authorities on the law of nations in the course of the ensuing negotiations for the conclusion of a more full-fledged treaty, namely the Treaty of Amity and Commerce of 1858, with the commissioners of the shogunate. Again and again, Harris invoked the law of nations in his dealings with Japanese officials. In his own diary, he recalls the following, I quote, I added that the proposition to shut out the minister, namely the head of the diplomatic mission in Japan, from residing at Yedo, namely the site of the shogunate, or wherever he pleased, was highly offensive, and that the minister and the consuls must have all the rights enjoyed by such persons under the laws of nations, that I ask nothing more for them than those rights and that I could not take any less." End of quotation. According to his diary, he pursued this point further as follows. The quote again. I told the commissioners that it was useless to proceed with the further consideration of the treaty until they would consent to grant the minister the rights he enjoyed under the laws of nations. End of quotation. The first encounter with the new concept of the law of nations was a great surprise to the Bakufu authorities. The concept was totally alien and novel to them. They had never heard about such a concept. 
they were told that the whole concept of the law of nations was an essential prerequisite for satisfactory conduct of intercourse with these barbarian Westerners. The outside world consisted of a number of nations like Japan, so it was said, but they were organized to form a community of civilized nations where certain basic rules of conduct would apply. The community of nations could accept only those nations which were civilized enough and prepared enough to practice this code of conduct in their mutual intercourse. Thus told, they decided, namely the Bakufu officials decided, that the study and understanding of this new concept, law of nations, was a matter of immediate urgency for Japan. As the Japanese looked for a clue to their understanding of this alien concept of the law of nations, they found a Chinese translation of Feton's book, Elements of International Law, which had just been published in China in 1864. The translation was made by the uh, Reverend Martin, A.P. Martin, an American missionary assisted by a commission of Chinese scholars appointed by Prince Kung who was the Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Qing government. Intellectual elites of the day in Japan, eager to gain access to this new concept of the law of nations, thus devoured the book in its Chinese translation. This attitude of the Chinese authorities would appear to make a remarkable contrast with the attitude of the Chinese authorities during the same period. China first became aware of international law already during the early years of the Qin dynasty, uh, which started in 1644. Representatives of the Dutch East India Company had met with the Chinese officials between 1662 and 1690 and frequently referred to the law of all nations and the custom of all princes in the context of their discussion on such principles as the immunity of envoys from detention or arrest. It is also a historical fact that the Qin dynasty China negotiated with the Tsarist Russia to conclude China's first treaty with the Western power, namely the Treaty of Nerchinsk in 1689 to settle the border dispute between the two states. Nonetheless, in spite of the pressure exerted by some Western powers on China to abandon her isolation and to establish political and commercial intercourse on the basis of sovereign equality, China continued to insist on their position that Western emissaries conform to the Chinese protocol based on the tributary system. As one scholar put it, it was difficult for the conservative Chinese elite to understand and to accept ideas completely alien to the traditional East Asian system of conducting foreign relations. What I wish to emphasize with this process is that these Japanese officials, contrary to the Chinese counterparts, paid particular attention to the problem of the nature and sources of international law. In their desperate struggle to grasp this novel concept of the law of nations, these officials tried to understand the whole concept within the context of their Confucian culture. Upon the strength of their familiarity with the philosophy of neoclassical Jewish school of Confucianism, 
they eventually come, came up with the idea that the concept of the law of nations, defined as a canon of rules governing the relations between states, must be somewhat analogous to their own Confucian metaphysical concept of the principles of the universe, tendo in Japanese, which were the basic principles governing the human rea uh, relations in society. Thus, these Japanese officials came to the conclusion that the Western concept of the law of nations must, be, must consist of some high moral precepts of universal justice applicable to the intercourse among states in very much the same way as the high moral principles of Confucian Tendo were applicable to the human relations between individuals in society. Thus, they came to refer to this concept of the law of nations as Kodo, public principles, which was reminiscent of the Confucian principles of Tendo, the way of heaven, or principles of the universe. It is my submission that what is important with this development for our purposes today is not so much the point that Harris insisted on invoking the law of nations in his negotiations as a point that it marked the beginning of the process in which the Japanese authorities came to absorb the precepts of this law of nations as the universal principle of justice applicable to the East as well as to the West, which would make it possible for Japan to accept the precepts of the community of civilized nations. It is also to be noted that it marked the beginning of the process in which the West, as represented initially by the United States in their contacts with Japan, but followed immediately by major European powers such as Great Britain, France, Russia, and the Netherlands, came to accept Japan as a member of this essentially European regime of the community of civilized nations. Treaties similar to the Harris Treaty of 1858 were concluded with these powers in the same year. As soon as the imperial government of the emperor was established following the return of political power by the shogunate to the emperor of Kyoto at the beginning of 1868, the new imperial government immediately issued various proclamations and decrees in which the government made its firm commitment to the law of nations. Already on the 8th of February of the same year, the Imperial Proclamation on Foreign Policy was issued, in which we find the following declaration. I quote, Our foreign intercourse shall be conducted henceforth in conformity with the public law of the universe. Now here you find the expression the public law of the universe, referring that to the concept of the law of nations, but using the terminology which was commonly understood by the Japanese intellectuals as the precepts of the Chinese classical school of Confucianism. Only two months later, on 6 April 1868, Emperor Meiji issued the five articles of oath, commonly known as the Charter Oath, as the basic policy pledge of the new government to the nation. Its fourth article declared the following, and I quote again. <clears throat> the evil customs of the past shall be broken off, and everything henceforth 
shall be based upon the public principles of the universe. Here again, you have the very much the same expression, the public principles of the universe, which corresponds to the concept of the principles of the universe as used in the Zhuzi uh, neoclassical school of Chinese Confucianism, which, of course, formed the basic intellectual background of the elite class in, the, in, in Japan in those days. Thus, the new Meiji government, which took over the power from the shogunate and set on the course of modernization, thought it appropriate to invoke the public law of nations or the principles of the universe as a guiding principle of the government and appealed to the Japanese public at large to abide by this precept. It was only natural under these circumstances that the vast majority of intellectuals of the day viewed the law of nations as being synonymous with the European civilization operating on the principle on the principles that governed the community of civilized nations. What is most significant in this respect is that they based their understanding of this concept of the, on the premise that it related to some universal principles of justice which ran in common through both the Occidental system and the Oriental system. The law of nations was accepted by them on this metaphysical level with its predominant feature and with their understanding that it was synonymous with the neoclassical Confucian concept of the principle of universe, heaven. In fact, some of these intellectuals even took the more utopian view of this concept and regarded the law of nations as nothing else than an embodiment of natural justice and reason. For them, Therefore, the law of nations should be the instrument to serve as a shield of the weak and a sword for equality. It would protect a nascent weak nation of Japan from the hands of strong Western nations. Thus, there was a virtual consensus among the leading elites of the country that the law of nations was the essential ticket for the admission of Japan into the community of civilized nations consisting of the European powers. On a more superficial level, what came to be known as the Rokumeikan period was a manifestation of this trend of the time. Rokumeikan is the name of a social club created by the Meiji government for leading elites of society as a place for emulating everything European including Western clothing, Western culture, and Western lifestyle, such as social dancing. However, much more difficult was the creation of social and juridical institutions. As West, Westlake incisively suggested, as I quoted earlier, the opening of the country to foreign nations did not make Japan automatically acceptable as an equal member of this community. Indeed, precisely for this reason, a series of treaties concluded in the early stages of the opening of the country by the shogunate, starting in the Ansei period of 1854-59, with a number of Western powers, they are called the Ansei treaties. Those treaties contained stipulations for the regime of extraterritoriality, which reserved the treatment of foreign residents in Japan to the consular jurisdiction of the treaty powers. 
in their eyes, Japan at that time still belonged to the group of nations where, and I quote the expression of the Westlake, the Europeans did not feel safe under the local administration of justice, end of quotation. Against this background, the most urgent policy objective of the Meiji government was to get rid of the inequalities contained in these ANSI treaties, in particular the regime of extraterritoriality. The treaty powers on their part, however, demanded as a prerequisite for such revision of these treaties, the modernization of the legal system of Japan in line with those of the European countries in this situation. The new government had to grapple with the problem of transforming social and political institutions of the country on the basis of principles of the modern state system of the European nations, which constituted the community of civilized nations. This called for the restructuring of the legal system. The urgency required did not allow Japan to wait for the law to grow spontaneously in response to the needs of society as they would arise through the transformation of old Japan into a modern society. Under these circumstances, the government resorted to an extreme step of introducing the legislation of France based on the Napoleonic codes regarded at that time as the most modern in Europe, as a model for the Japanese legal system. At the center of this exercise for drafting the civil code were such people as Mitsukuri Rinsho, who had pursued the Dutch studies, which in those days were considered to be most important for the study of European culture. The draft civil code consisting of 1,820 articles was completed in 1878, only 10 years after the opening of the country. While it was not adopted in the form it was originally proposed as it was thought to be too much a reproduction of the French civil code, it came to constitute the essential framework for the new legal system of Japan. Now I'm getting into the phase where Japan had to deal with this problem of unequal treaties. Now at the same time as the new imperial government proclaimed the commitment to the continued obligations under those treaties upon its assumption of power in 1868, it also took steps immediately to notify the representatives of the treaty powers as early as the beginning of 1869 of its desire to revise certain treaty provisions. You can understand why that was so important for the Meiji government. In fact, when the Meiji government initiated a preparatory study of the program, the government came to realize the essentially unequal character of the treaties, in particular in relation to three major issues, namely, first, the regime of extraterritoriality of jurisdiction. Second, the unilateral nature of the conventional tariffs, which was determined by the other side and imposed upon Japan. And thirdly, the unilateral unconditional character of the most favored nation clause included in those commercial treaties. All of these were perceived to place Japan on an unequal footing with the Western 
contracting parties to the treaty is concerned and to constitute an infringement of the sovereignty of Japan. However, the Meiji leaders soon had to realize that the road was by no means an easy one. For this purpose, an official mission of the Japanese government, led by Iwakura Tomomi, a, a very famous um, statesman of that period, he was sent to the treaty powers in 1871 to, to put forward the views and demands of the government with respect to the proposed revision of the treaties. Nonetheless, the attitude of the treaty powers to the Iwakura embassy turned out to be a disappointing one. And it was the, this disheartening experience of this mission that dealt a hard blow to the confidence of the Japanese side had in the justice of the law of nations. By far the most shattering experience of this mission came when the Iwakura embassy visited Prussia and met Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. He had this to say to the mission, and I quote his words. In today's world, it is said that every country interacts with, uh, with other states on the basis of friendship, harmony, and courtesy. However, this is merely a superficial lip service, behind which lies actual practice. That is, insults to which the strong subject the weak, and scorn in which the big hold the small. When I was a child, my pressure was poor and weak. I perceived that the so-called law of all nations argued for the profit of great powers. If the law of nations contained in it an advantage for them, the powerful would apply the law of nations to the latter. But when it lacked attraction, the law of nations was jettisoned and a military might employed regardless of the tactics." End of quotation. By the time Iwakura Tomomi returned from his mission to the West in September 1879, he himself was a different person from the one who, as a senior member of the new imperial cabinet of Emperor Meiji, had made the recommendation in 1869 to the cabinet that Japan should base her intercourse with Western countries on reason and justice and good faith. And this was, these were his own words 10 years before. What had been the minority view on the law of nations as being the tool of the strong was to become the majority opinion within the members of the mission. The most debilitating experience that would have a long-lasting effect, however, came with the Japanese house tax case, an arbitration case which Japan herself brought before the Permanent Court of Arbitration in 1903. The positive stance of Meiji Japan towards embracing the law of nations had been manifested in her forthcoming positive attitude towards international arbitration. Starting with the Maria Luce case of 1873, which was only five years after the establishment of the Meiji government, in which the Meiji government had for the first time brought an international dispute before an international arbitration after only five years of its existence, Japan had been a party to as many as seven arbitration cases in the short span of 25 years between 1877 and 1902. It is believed that this is a record which no other country of the period could equal. 
while each of these cases has a different background arising under different circumstances, it can safely be said that this is an evidence that shows the degree of positive attitude of esteem in which Japan held international law in those days. You can also see that 1902 is only three years after it was decided to establish the permanent court of arbitration in the first Hague Conference of 1899. The dispute in the Jap Japanese house tax case involved the interpretation and application of some provisions which came to be incorporated in the revised treaties of commerce and navigation that the Meiji government had just succeeded in concluding with the former treaty powers after strenuous, arduous, protracted negotiations extending over 20 years with Great Britain in 1894 and with France and Germany in 1896. The purpose of the revision had been to eliminate the elements of inequality contained in the old unequal treaties that had been imposed upon the shogunate government in the 1850s. The provisions in issue in the new revised treaties concerned the problem of abolition of the regime of extraterritoriality that had been granted under the old treaties to the resident nationals of the treaty powers with respect to taxation. The provisions in question acknowledging the existing status quo in relation to the real property that had been leased in perpetuity to the foreigners under the old regime stipulated that, I quote the actual provision, existing leases in perpetuity under which real property is now held in the settlement shall be confirmed and no conditions of any kind other than those contained in the existing leases shall be imposed in respect of such property." End of the article. The dispute arose when the government of Japan claimed that under the new regime of the revised treaty, the land only was exempt from the payment of imposts and other charges, and government sought to levy tax on the houses built on the land leased in perpetuity in these for to these foreigners in the settlements. Against this, the three powers argued that by virtue of the provisions in the article in question, not only the land leased in perpetuity was exempt from the tax, but buildings constructed on such land constituted, continued to enjoy the same exemption. The permanent court of arbitration, composed of three arbitrators from France, Japan, and Norway, came out with an award in favor of the three European powers. The decision was based primarily on a technical ground of law involving the interpretation of the provisions in question. While this is not the proper place to engage in the detailed analysis of the arguments of both parties on the merits, the central issue in dispute would boil down to the following. Should the special regime of tax exemption of real property under the new revised treaties recognized by the Meiji government as lex specialis to the lex generalis under which the regime of extraterritoriality was abolished, apply only to the land in the foreign settlements or also to the houses erected upon it? Thus formulated, the answer should be found through ascertaining the object and the purpose of the new revised treaties and the intention of the parties as seen from the natural and ordinary meaning of the provisions at issue.
the court took an approach to look for the answer to the question put to it through, in particular, two elements. First, the intention of the parties in creating this exemption at the time of the old treaties. And second, the subsequent practice of the parties during the period of the old treaties. The court in its relevant parts of the award stated as follows, and I quote from the award. It's a bit long quotation, but it's an interesting point. In order to estimate the nature and extent of the engagements entered into on both sides by the lease in perpetuity, it is necessary to refer to various arrangements and conventions arrived at between the Japanese authorities and the representatives of various powers when the old treaties were in force. From these instruments and from the stipulations inserted in the leases, it appears that foreigners not being permitted according to the principles of Japanese law to acquire ownership of land situated in that country, the government have leased land to them in perpetuity. That it was agreed in principle the foreign settlements should remain outside the municipal system of Japan. It would be easy to account for the care taken in drawing up the said instruments with a view to defining the obligations of every kind incumbent upon foreigners towards the Japanese government, if it was understood that they would, as leases, only have to pay the imports and charges expressly mentioned in the said leases. The land was leased for building purposes, which is indicated both by the situation of the, on the ground and by the nature of the measures taken to its management by the Japanese government. It must be admitted that the circumstances thus recorded constitute arguments against the plea that this ground and buildings form entirely separate objects in the relations between the parties and from the fiscal point of view. It is unquestionable that in accordance with the practice which has not varied and which has existed for a long series of years, not only the land in question, but also the buildings erected on the land have been exempt from all import, taxes, charges, contributions, or conditions whatsoever, other than those expressly stipulated in the leases to perpetuity. The government of Japan maintains that the state of things, as well as the fiscal immunity enjoyed in general by foreigners in the country, was only due to the circumstances that the consular tribunals refused to give the necessary sanction to the fiscal laws of the country. However, the award continues, this claim is devoid of proof and it is not even alleged that the Japanese government ever made reservations from this point. Now, that's the end of the quotation. In a nutshell, what the court held was that the unequal favored treatment of foreigners under the old ANSI treaties continued to exist in relation both to the house tax and the land tax on the ground inter-area, that the institutions of tax exemption in the foreign settlement under the old treaties was created with the intention of treating the settlements separate from the municipal system of Japan, and that it was not proven by the subsequent practice with regard to the regime of extraterritoriality that this arrangement 
under all treaties was intended to apply only to the land, but not to the buildings erected on it. Now, I'm not going to pass a judgment on that particular question on the merits, but whatever the cogency of the reasons of the court may be on legal grounds, it is easy to see how upset and disillusioned people in Japan were at this negative outcome of the award. This was so in particular because the nature of the dispute was directly related to the most emotional issue of the extraterritoriality regime contained in the unequal treaties. The disappointment was all the greater because of their earlier convictions that the justice on the case was on their side. Indeed, they had not even dreamt of the possibility that their case could have been somewhat flawed from a purely technical legal point of view. Under such circumstances, the loss of that case by Japan had two major repercussions, both of which were going to exert an immeasurable impact on the subsequent course of Japan. The first is that the award kindled the suspicion that the West, after all, might not really be interested in treating Japan on a fair and equal footing based as a member of the community of civilized nations. A further suspicion grew that the West might well bear some racial prejudice against Japan and might be working against the just interest of Japan. Now, this point confirms the kind of negative attitude which grew after the Iwakura mission had returned from Europe. The second significant repercussion of this case, which to my mind is no less important, is that this experience taught a lesson to the Japanese, at least to those Japanese who were in a position to apply international law. The lesson they learned was that international law was not so much a body of principles based on natural justice, which the East could share in common with the West, as a bunch of technical rules to be manipulated. They might work to your advantage if you were sufficiently skillful, or they might work to your disadvantage if you were not skillful. The disappointment and the disillusionment on the part of many of the, at the loss of the case, was pr proportionately the stronger because of the initial conviction in the justice of their case. There appeared a gradual but discernible trend towards an erosion in their faith in international law, which subsequently came to lead Japan into her tragic destiny. What does this history tell you? In the context of the history of contacts expanding over centuries, Europe and East Asia have shared a tumultuous past. However, the greatest historical evolution that changed the fate of a large part of East Asia, which has had until today a lasting imprint upon the relationship between Europe and East Asia, came about in the form of colonial domination, to which many of the East Asian nations fell victim. Thus, the Philippines became a colony of the Spaniards. Indonesia was also colonized by the Dutch. Maria, Maria and Burma came under the British rule, and Indochina fell under the French domination. China also became a target of colonial appetite. In this situation, Japan also was exposed to the impact of the aggressive advance of European powers of the 19th century. 
the experience of Japan nonetheless was very different from those of many fellow East Asian nations. When in the latter half of the 19th century, the real impact fell upon Japan with the demand for the opening of Japan to the world, Japan decided to engage in systematic efforts to turn this challenge into an opportunity through her assiduous learning and digestion of things European in order to assert her place within this community of civilized nations. It is no doubt true that at a time when Japan was practically the only country outside Europe to have been exposed to this process of admi admission into the community, it was unthinkable to those Japanese who handled this process to question and challenge the validity of the proposition that Japan could be part of the community of civilized nations only through the process of assimilation to European civilization. In such an environment, it became imperative for Japan to pursue studies of European civilization and introduce it into her traditional social milieu. This conscious effort was carried out on a truly amazing scale in such wide-ranging fields as the system of government, economy, law, military affairs, and science and technology, and further extending to arts, literature, food, clothing, and housing. In those days, in Japan, the term modernization thus became synonymous with Europeanization. The footprints left by Europe in Japan during this period have indeed been indelible. Nevertheless, I do not believe it is accurate to say that this modern Japan has been built entirely on the model of Europeanization in the sense of her total assimilation and integration into the orbit of European civilization. In fact, the process of modernization of Japan at any rate in its civilizational sense has been an unfinished history of the intellectual struggle to reconcile and amalgamate the two seemingly different civilizations of the West and the East. Japan, instead of engaging in the clash of civilizations, has tried hard to assert her identity and her proper place within the community of civilized nations through identifying something common and universal that she could accept as the basis of modernization of Japan in continuum with her past. The process has not been at all easy. In fact, I do not claim that Japan has been a totally successful case in this regard. As a famous professor of law at the Tokyo Imperial University of the Meiji period lamented, a serious concern was expressed in those days that, and I quote his words, with the coming into force of the new civil code, the traditional virtues of loyalty to the sovereign and piety to the parents would perish, in end of quotation. This spiritual agony of the intellectuals of Japan has been even more dramatically articulated in the field of literature, a domain of intellectual expression for the zeitgeist of society. A number of the most representative novelists of modern Japan have focused their attention to the dilemma of living with two civilizations in the existential sense, as exemplified by the works of such authors as Natsume Soseki, Tanisaki Junichiro, 
and Yokomitsuriji, to name only a few. This intellectual struggle continues to this day, in my view. In fact, I believe that one of the basic reasons why the process of globalization of today, as distinct from that of internationalization in the Meiji period of Japan, is so difficult, lies precisely on this point. Globalization for Japan would involve not a quantitative change in society, but a qualitative transformation of society. Through the period of encounter of Japan with the West, when the Japanese intellectuals were confronted with a totally novel concept of the law of nations of the West, they tried hard to understand and grasp the concept by looking for a comparable frame of reference in their own cultural heritage and to identify this concept as one which should have its rational meaning in this context and should therefore represent something common both to the East and the West. While it may be true that this attempt on their part led them later into disillusionment and eventually into a blind alley which contributed to the subsequent course of history of Japan with tragic results, these Japanese elites who were engaged in the modernization of Japan proved to be highly intellectual and scientific in their approach. They tried to comprehend the meaning of what was specific by identifying what was universal in that specificity. To borrow the words of Levi-Strauss, a well-known social anthropologist of constru constructionist school, the scientific approach of structuralism in anthropology should consist in, according to his words, the quest for the invariant or for the uh, invariant elements among the superficial differences. These are his words. What I'm trying to say is that this approach of the quest for the invariant elements among the superficial differences represented the essence of the process of Japan's encounter with the community of civilized nations. It is my submission that a true understanding of contemporary Japan, whether it is in its political, economic, or social aspects, can only be complete and truthful on the basis of a comprehensive grasp of Japan in the context of such continuum in her history, her cultural heritage, and her social interests expanding over centuries.